Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Avi Cooper, and I'm joined by my amazing friends and co-hosts, Tony Brew and Hannah Abrams. How are you both? I am doing uh, amazingly, actually. Just fantastic. Seems like we all have adequate oxygen. Is that fair to say? <sighs> Breathing comfortably on room air. Yeah, exactly. Not just adequate, but appropriate oxygen. I would say respiratory rates are 16, 18. <laughs> Pro- probably 20. Well, so today we're going to discuss the dangers of having too much oxygen around. And, you know, just about everyone knows that hypoxia, having low oxygen levels in the blood is problematic, but the same can be said of hyperoxia. So Tony, where should we begin? So so when we talked about fever uh, a few episodes ago in episode 24, we started 600 million years in the past. Uh, I thought, why not go back even further for this one and go a few billion years uh, into the past? And the reason that's important is to understand why oxygen is harmful to humans and to other creatures, we have to understand how our atmosphere changed over time and how life evolved alongside those changes. If we go back a few billion years, the Earth's atmosphere was largely made up of nitrogen and carbon dioxide, and there was very little oxygen in the atmosphere. And what happened is cyanobacteria eventually emerged and they started using photosynthesis. And as a byproduct, basically just a waste product of photosynthesis, we began to see oxygen produced. And this overabundance of oxygen from all these cyanobacteria led to something called the Great Oxidation Event. And that Great Oxidation Event led to this dramatic spike in oxygen levels in the atmosphere. Sounds pretty good. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, you'd think like, okay, no, no big deal. Let's let's like just shut a lot of bunch of oxygen into the atmosphere. But the problem is that all these anaerobic life had not yet adapted to oxygen. And I think we all remember, if we think about it a little bit, even if it's not immediately in our memory, that oxygen can transform into reactive oxygen species like superoxide and hydrogen peroxide. And these molecules are toxic and cause harm. So one result of this great oxidation event, which you might otherwise say is, hey, sounds like a pretty decent thing or at least neutral, was what some argue is the greatest mass extinction in Earth's history, like like the, the number one. But at the very least, there's, a, a, I think, a some degree of consensus that it at least led to some degree of mass extinction. So either way, it wasn't good for a lot of the organisms oh. that were living on the planet. Oh, yeah, I really thought that one should ought to have been a good thing. <laughs> yeah, you would have thought so. <laughs> um, okay, so but now you've got all this oxygen, you've got all these free radicals, and eventually mechanisms evolved to handle really both of them, both the oxygen and these free radicals. And what's really fascinating when I started reading about this is that a lot of these molecules we think of as using oxygen to our benefit, but it may not be that that was their original intent, right? So things like iron binding molecules like heme and the ability to oxidize oxygen uh, to water and carbon dioxide, right? That former thing, the heme molecule, is a part of hemoglobin. And it's now used to shuttle oxygen around in red blood cells to all disparate parts of the body. And the second reaction where oxygen is used in oxidative phosphorylation to create water and carbon dioxide, you know, the byproduct of that is a lot more ATP than glycolysis could ever provide for us. So evolutionarily, and I think this is accurate, you know, with all this extra ATB, ATP being formed, that led to more energy and eventually larger organisms like the three of us. 
So you know, it's kind of interesting when you think about it in that, in that way. So are you saying, Tony, that things like that are kind of essential to life, like hemoglobin and ATP, are sort of happy accidents of a need to neutralize otherwise harmful oxygen and kind of do something with that? I think that's exactly what I'm saying, yes. <laughs> but I can't, and I don't think any of us can necessarily say for sure that that's what happened, right? That, that their original intent was just let's neutralize harmful oxygen and we got lucky that the result of that neutralization was hemoglobin shuttling around oxygen to our body and oxidative phosphorylation creating a heck of a lot more ATP than glycolysis alone could have afforded. But that's, you know, it had to have started with something other than the that end in mind. I don't know if you guys, if that seems believable to the two of you. It does. And, you know, it's fascinating to think about the early earth and what happened, but let's maybe move forward in time too. And, um, <laughs> you, you don't want to just like hunker down 2 billion years ago. Yeah. And like, you know, what, uh, what do we know now about the harms of oxygen? Yeah. So let me give you a couple other historical notes. Cause I think, I think they're going to provide some additional context as we move into the explanation for why oxygen is harmful. So first in, in 1878, a researcher, Paul Burt discovered that if you increase the oxygen level that's delivered to animals, it leads to convulsions and death, right? So obviously two bad things. And a couple decades later, in 1899, James Lorraine Smith reported similar findings, that increasing oxygen tension led to, again, convulsions. But in this case, he also noted harmful pulmonary effects. And so for actually for a while, the CNS and pulmonary toxicities of hyperoxia were actually known as the BERT effect and the Lorraine-Smith effect in response to these findings. So how do they happen or why? Right. So I think now we're obligated to talk about like why is the harm occurring. So in 1943, Seymour Ketty and Carl Schmidt, they gave us, I think, a really key clue uh, to the answer. So they showed that inhalation of 85 to 100% oxygen reduced cerebral blood flow by 13%. And this was a result of increased vascular resistance, which also led to increased systemic blood pressure. And, uh, you know, decades later, we now have a systematic review that kind of summarizes all the hemodynamic effects of hyperoxia across all sorts of different patient types. And what you see consistently is an increase in systemic vascular resistance as oxygen tension increases and a decreased cardiac output. And so the simplest way to think about it is that as you deliver more oxygen, systemic blood vessels will vasoconstrict. Okay, so if I were to suddenly be inhaling 100% oxygen, my whole body would systemically vasoconstrict. For example, I would be getting 13% less cerebral blood flow in response to that. So why? Right. And I think I think that's right. I want to be very clear about it, and we may talk about this later, is so far we're talking about the systemic circulation. So the mm -hmm. pulmonary circulation, sort of put that aside for now. Again, we, we may bring it up, but the discussion so far is about the brain, the heart, the kidneys, the guts. Those arterial beds will vasoconstrict in response. And what it seems like is our bodies are sensing this increased oxygen in the form of an increased PO2, and they're vasoconstricting as an attempt to counteract the harmful effects of that oxygen. But Tony, is the problem 
vasoconstriction or is the problem, you know, damage to reactive oxygen species and damage to DNA and stuff like that in terms of why you get these clinical effects that they were seeing with the Smith and the Bird experiments, stuff like that? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think in experiments like what um, Lorraine Smith and Bert did, it's probably a combination. But I think in those situations, when you're when you're giving a hundred percent FiO two, I, I just don't think you can vasoconstrict enough to counteract the increase in PO two. So my sense is that undoubtedly you're going to experience the harmful effects of the reactive oxygen species uh, in those situations. I think in the setting of what we all do, where we maybe turn someone from room air onto six or eight liters, the PO2 increases, but the body is able to respond by vasoconstricting. And so my sense, although I don't know this, but my sense is the harmful effects there are from the vasoconstriction, which is an attempt to protect those end organs from reactive oxygen species. Those free radicals, they sound spi-orbital. But does that answer your question, Avi? Yeah, I mean, it does. I guess my sense would be that it sounds like it's a physiologic stress to try to do all this vasoconstriction to, to kind of counterbalance this oxygen load. But I, I imagine that the oxygen itself is what's mediating a lot of the harmful effects too at the cellular level. The oxygen or the reactive oxygen species? Yeah, the, the hyperoxia leading to reactive oxygen right. species. Yeah, and, and that's the thing is it, I, I, it, it, it has to be a combination, right? Because if you think about it, you're not going to vasoconstrict unless there's at least some <laughs> reactive oxygen species that are, are like being con- produced, I, you'd have to imagine. Yeah. So and this is, this is a little bit of this and a little bit of that. We give vasoconstrictors to patients all the time. <laughs> right, We're yeah, called vasopressors, right? I mean, we, we, we do that. Yeah. Is this like the next bedside sort of maneuver? You know, like when I want to give someone a half a liter of fluid, sometimes you'll just like lift their legs up. Is this the next move? Is like if I wanted to simulate giving someone phenylephrine, I would instead just give them some oxygen. So, so it's interesting that you asked that. There, there are animal studies demonstrating that in – the example I have is, is a rat model of hemorrhagic shock where they administer increasing amounts of FiO2, and it counteracts the shock by leading to vasoconstriction. So there is a theoretical use of oxygen for the treatment of shock, but to be very clear, this is not a sanctioned use in humans, and the, I think the Avi, you can weigh in here – the data in humans is there is more harm than good in hyperoxia. So even though you know, theoretically we might say, oh yeah, let's let's use it as a as our next line vasopressor, don't do it. Yeah, is that is that, is that right? <laughs> Obviously, that's fair to say. But that 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 even that result is crazy. Oh yeah, of course. That's bananas, man. But it but it fits right with with what we're seeing. So what is the mechanism then leading to vasoconstriction? Yeah, so there's probably a few different mechanisms, and I'll offer one here briefly, and then we may talk about other ones um, you know, later on. But the first is reduction in endothelial-derived nitric oxide. And I think more specifically, this is decrease in nitric oxide as a result of these reactive oxygen species that we've been talking about. And as we've talked about previously on the podcast, and I think many of the listeners know, you know, nitric oxide is a potent vasodilator. So if if something decreases the amount of it, you're going to see vasoconstriction. And so that that's, I think, probably the key mechanism for, or the simplest mechanism, is just these reactive oxygen species somehow lead to decreased NO. You know, it's, it's an interesting observation, though, that oxygen has the exact opposite effect in the lungs, right? We talk about 
hypoxic vasoconstriction. Here we've been talking about hyperoxic vasoconstriction, which is the exact opposite. So how do the pulmonary and systemic vascular beds seem to like uh, respond in exactly opposite ways in response to kind of environmental changes? Yeah, we alluded to this earlier, and, and it's obviously fortunate for us that they do because they, by having these disparate responses, you know, we benefit. And the reality is this question deserves its own episode. But right now, I think the biology is still being worked out. And so I don't think, I'm not going to have a clear answer for you, but l- let me give you a couple of the, the different sort of leading things that are being discussed. So the first, which I found the most interesting, was Um, Studies, particularly from the sort of late 90s, early 2000s, suggested that the pulmonary and systemic arteries actually have distinct mitochondria, right? That each respond differently to high and low oxygen levels. Because it's really probably the mitochondria that that are the sensors for hypoxia and hyperoxia and not the extracellular space. It's probably all happening within the, the mitochondria. And so the problem and and the reason I'm not going to be able to give really a satisfactory answer is it's not clear to me, and I'm not even sure it's it's yet been elucidated by the researchers, is how this same exposure, right, local hypoxia, particularly at the level of the mitochondria, how this leads to you know, generation of, of reactive oxygen species within that mitochondria, but how the downstream effect is so different, where if you have hypoxia in the pulmonary system, it leads to vasoconstriction. But if you have hypoxia in the systemic system, it leads to vasodilation. I just, I could not find a clear answer to this. And I think it's not necessarily because I just didn't look hard enough. I'm just not sure that we have it quite yet. Mm, wow. It's pretty cool. So maybe if maybe an episode in two years. Yeah. It's cool. So they're both kind of responding to the same cue and in wildly different ways. All right. Should we talk about the evidence behind oxygen being harmful, maybe in humans rather than in <laughs> probiotics, bacteria, cyanobacteria, prokaryotes. Yeah. prokaryotes. Yeah, we, uh, yeah, we won't go back a few billion years yet. Um, uh, I think so, uh, because this is, is kind of a changing, right? Like I learned Mona um, in medical school and as an intern as a treatment uh, for either acute MI or suspected MI, right? So MI, so mono stood for or stands for morphine, oxygen, nitro, and aspirin. And the idea was that if you have a patient who's coming in with chest pain and you have diagnosed MI or you suspect they have an MI, you got to put them on oxygen, right? You need to decrease oxygen delivery to the heart. And the way to do that is to just turn it on up. I don't know. Is this still the the teaching that you got, Hannah, as you entered intern year? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is definitely a bit of a med school mnemonic. Uh, actually, Mona has a last name. It's Mona Bash now. Um, beta blocker, I, I've, ACE I've inhibitor. Never, yeah, I've never heard her last yeah. name. <laughs> beta blocker, ACE inhibitor, statin, and heparin. But absolutely, this is still being taught. So so in, it's not as though people are like, Mona exists, but you know, know that the O doesn't really apply. Like, is there a nuance there? I think, you know, the way that I remember it is like, this is almost a preclinical mnemonic that I learned in like my MS1 or MS2 year and then did not think about again. And so I think like our clinical pathways are so much different. And this is probably something that's really, I would imagine, one of those challenges where preclinical students coming into clinics have to sort of grapple with the difference between these mnemonics that were developed a long time ago and how we actually treat people now. Right. I mean, I today we, we, there was a conference where we talked about mud piles, gold mark, and then Kurt came up as a third mnemonic Kurt. for metabolic acidosis. 
uh, get anion gap metabolic acidosis. You know, as we talked about, you know, as we turn up the oxygen, the systemic vascular resistance is going to increase. And if we think specifically about MI, right, and MONA, the coronary vascular resistance is going to increase. And so the result is that there is no improvement in oxygen delivery when you um, turn up the oxygen, and there may be uh, a decrease in oxygen delivery. So let me let me mention just a couple studies. So, so in 1968, uh, there was a study of patients who had acute MI. And it showed that there was an increase in SVR and a decrease in cardiac output when they put patients on supplemental oxygen. But I found this study so fascinating because they noticed that there was a decrease in lactate production in the patients who got supplemental oxygen, despite the fact that there was decreased cardiac output. And so because of the lactate alone, the author's final sentence Oof. of the study was, quote, there may well be grounds for advocating this treatment, the treatment being oxygen, in all patients, irrespective of the clinical severity of the illness, end quote. Right, so the cardiac output decreased when you, uh, when you give oxygen, the SVR increased, but who cares, the lactate got better. I, I just found that so fascinating. But in the subsequent decades, we've had a number of randomized control trials in patients with acute MI or suspected MI that has, have either shown no benefit or harm. And so the harm often comes in the form of increased infarct size. And so I'll give you one example of that. There was a 2015 study that randomized patients with acute MI to either eight liters per minute of oxygen or no supplemental oxygen. And that study found the infarct size was larger and the rates of recurrent MI were higher if you got oxygen. And there have been other studies that, that I, I won't mention in that really kind of show similar things, either worse outcomes or no difference with supplemental oxygen. So um, as we may talk about later, the, the recommendations have changed in this, and it's certainly not to do MONA. So that was MI. Um, how about other other sort of groups of people? Yeah, I'll be interested to see if Avi wants to weigh in here, but yeah, there's similar data in critically ill patients uh, and we can summarize that, you know, maybe on the website. And then obviously, I think most of us know that in COPD, you want to be uh, judicious. But remember, that's a slightly different mechanism that that really we're dealing with the uh, hypoxic vasoconstriction and really the loss of the appropriate hypoxic vasoconstriction. But there's a multitude of, of patient populations in, in whom you want to be careful about oxygen. But Avi, you want to maybe comment on critically ill patients? Yeah, I think there's clear links that hyperoxia for patients on a ventilator uh, worsens outcomes on the vent and can kind of contribute to ventilator-induced lung injury um, and worsened ARDS. And then also cardiac arrest as well, hyperoxia, there's like a linear, I think, association with worsened neurological outcomes and I think even risk of death after cardiac arrest for patients who get, who are, who are hyperoxic. And again, I don't know, you know, how much of this is vasoconstriction, like you talked about, how much is cellular injury and kind of vulnerable in a vulnerable milieu, it sounds like maybe it's probably a combination of the two. Right. Either way, not something you want to do to a person. So with all that, all of that being said, and all of this harm that we are documenting with hyperoxia, what is our goal kind of PAO2B or our, or our saturation? What are we aiming at? Yeah, hopefully not. We're not using PO2 because it's a lot of ABGs. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll offer some um, recommendations. And the one I'll offer is a British Medical Journal Critical Practice Guideline that was published in 2018. And so, again, going back to patients with confirmed or suspected MI, they recommend that oxygen should only be administered if the saturation is less than 90%. So, again, this is a, you know, a far cry from what I saw and, frankly, I continue to see where everyone comes up on two liters, if not more. 
For other acutely ill patients, they recommended that clinicians should administer oxygen if the oxygen saturation is less than 90 to 92, so they kind of give ranges, and that the target should be no higher than 94 to 96. So we're not aiming for 100% oxygen saturation. And then for COVID, the WHO suggests titrating to greater than 94 during initial resuscitation of patients, but that during the maintenance phase, that greater than 90% is is a, a reasonable goal oxygen saturation. This is, I think, a lot more conservative than I have experienced um, you know, early in my training and even more recently. But uh, is this what you guys are, are seeing either in ICUs or on floors? Well, yeah. I mean, I think it's specifically in the setting of COVID because sometimes the indication for one therapy or another is what the room air oxygen saturation is. I, I feel like this has come up so much. Um, yeah. It's like, what yeah. is hypoxia? or hypoxemia yeah. rather, and where are we really going to set that for each patient? But yes, I feel like I definitely have this conversation a lot about turning down oxygen. Yeah, I think it's, I agree. I think it's incumbent on us as clinicians that when we see somebody receiving supplemental oxygen who's saturating in the high 90s or 100% to turn that oxygen down and to titrate it down. Um, and it takes a little bit of extra work and time, but you know, you shouldn't be saturating 100% on supplemental oxygen. It just is not not necessary and, and seems to be harmful. That's right. Because cause the thing that people need to remember is if you're saturating 100% on supplemental oxygen, the PO2 is probably significantly higher than the PO2 you would achieve on room air. And it's really that PO2 that is being sensed and leading to all these negative effects. Yeah, so I'm I'm glad that we kind of all agree that I think this is a reasonable thing for us to kind of like push as a community to tr- try to do a little bit better on. Totally. And it's um also one of those opportunities for like delining and sort of de uh, monitoring people a little bit because I feel like so many patients are so nervous sitting there in their hospital rooms and waiting. And the only thing that they see is their pulse ox monitor. That's right. And, you know, if you don't necessarily need that, I think sometimes the the high level of monitoring can push people to end up with higher and higher oxygen. That's right. And add to patient stress. All right. So, Tony, other than um, in, in discussing our favorite things that we do for no reason, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about? No, I think that's that's all we got for, for this topic. Awesome. So want to give us some take-homes? I'd love to. So um, first, increased oxygen delivery by turning out the oxygen has kind of opposing effects on the pulmonary and systemic vasculature. And more specifically, as you increase the uh, FiO2, uh, you'll get dilation in the pulmonary tree and constriction in the systemic circulation. So two, that systemic vasoconstriction from increasing the amount of oxygen we give is partly mediated by a decrease in nitric oxide. And this, I think, is an attempt to protect the tissues from the these free radicals that are themselves damaging. And then the third take-home is that our O2 saturation goals have kind of shifted down over the years. Even just in my career, I've seen them really ratchet down. And this is in response to observations and data that um, support better outcomes when we're less aggressive about giving patients supplemental oxygen. Turn down that oxygen, folks. Turn it down. (laughs) All right. So that wraps up another episode of The Curious Clinicians and several billion years of evolutionary physiology. 
Thank you as always for joining us. And as a reminder, you can join our mailing list at curiousclinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. We are excited to partner with VCU Health to offer CME and MOC credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals just for listening to this episode. For more information, visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash curious clinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians. Bye. Bye.